0: We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 this morning, so please open up your Bible to there. We're going to spend the majority of our time here in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and we're going to begin at verse 23. But before we read our text this morning, I want to tell you all what the main point of the passage is. I'm going to give it to you early. That way you could be thinking about what it is that is trying to be communicated here as we read the text. You know, what is it? What is the idea, the specific idea that the Holy Spirit has impressed upon the author of this book, who is Solomon, who identified himself as a man named Kohelet, which means a sage, a teacher, a wise man, and the English translate, translates Kohelet as preacher? What is it that the Spirit of God wants to convey in his pen? through this text, for us and for all God's people in every generation. And I'm I'm compelled to do this, to tell you this up front, because the specific content in this passage is such that some under false pretense have made into controversy. And, And we, those of us here now, we need to take care that we don't do that. Especially because our minds, our hearts, our ears, they are... Tuned to the course of this world in 2019, even if we are saved, even if we are in Christ, we can't stop that. This is the culture that we live in. And so I'd like for us to be aware of the main idea of the passage before we read it, in the hopes that our minds won't think that this is saying something which it is not. And I'll get into the specifics of that later this morning, of course. Now, the main point, or the central idea of our passage this morning, is that wisdom is hard to find, but missing it is to our peril. Wisdom is hard to find, but missing it will be to our peril. And really, this is what Kohelet has been revealing to us since the beginning of chapter 7. He's been discussing and providing conclusions on, on wisdom and its limits since then. But actually, even before that, He set forth this premise in the very opening chapter of this book. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 17 says, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that it is also but a striving after the wind. It's vanity, remember. And so even though we've been taking our time over these last few weeks, going through chapter 7, a few verses here, a few verses there, and exegetically drawing out these doctrinal truths from them, which has been good for us, there's really one idea, one theme that is, is kind of behind that and flowing through chapter 7 all the way through 8.17 actually. And that is that, that Solomon, that Kohelet, is exploring the limits of wisdom and righteousness and its opposite as well, which is folly and wickedness. And he's coming to this conclusion that wisdom is hard to find but missing it is to our peril. Let's read the text with that in mind, and then we'll pray after. So the reading of God's Word, beginning at verse 23 in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, says, All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken in by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found. But a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, and they have sought out many schemes. This is God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. May he grant us understanding and apply it to our hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have a a tough passage before us, a passage that many have used to teach wrong things and to commit wrong deeds. And so we ask that you would give to us understanding that we might handle this text right, and that you might be exalted and glorified, and that we might see the care and the the urgency that you have in these words. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this, this is a crucial passage for us, friends. Now, we've been learning already that wisdom is limited, as it were, by man's sinfulness. We've already seen that in Ecclesiastes, and especially here in the opening verses of chapter 7. But he's making it clear now that it's also, that is, wisdom is limited by divine design and by human finiteness. Wisdom is limited by divine design and human finiteness. In other words, there are limitations just built into us as people that prevent us from knowing the full extent of wisdom. What Koholet is doing in this section in in 23 to 25 is he's continuing to pile up reasons for us to avoid excessive righteousness and wisdom. He continues to spell out the limitations of such righteousness and wisdom. And in this section, he uses some some jolting characters to spell out those limitations. And if we were to, to kind of pull back, just pull back a little bit from this specific text, that we read, and consider the larger context of this chapter and section, we'd see that he is really, he's continuing this train of thought. And he's coming closer in a resolution, or to having a resolution, and comparing wisdom and foolishness, and righteousness and wickedness. And these would be some of the most important topics for us to consider, church. Some of the most important topics for us in Scripture. There is life and joy and peace and sanctification, salvation, glorification, all caught up in wisdom and righteousness. It is the wisdom from God that ultimately strengthens and saves our eternal souls. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is is in fact in focus here when we talk about these things most certainly. And so wisdom is a topic that we need to persist in that we, we need to labor in. And it's dangerous for us to not do so. The reason being for that is we live in a world that is polluted with sin. It is, there's not an area of it that is unaffected by this. Sin is in this world. The preacher has said this already. Sin is in us. Down to our core, to our desires, our will, our emotions, sin has affected that all, has mastered it all. We are utterly foolish and utterly wick, wicked apart from Christ and the wisdom that he departs. It's our, our doctrine of total depravity. Simply put, we are dead in our sins apart from Christ, who, by the way, of course, is the personification of the very wisdom of God. That's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians twelve four that Jesus is, is one, the power of God, And two, he is the wisdom of God. So it's crucial that we understand these things because people who do not navigate this world in wisdom are going to be those people who fall into wickedness and temptation. None of us want to do that, right? None of us want to do that. People who fail to navigate in wisdom are those who will be trapped by wickedness. They'll indulge their sin as it is they are ensnared by it. These kinds of things exist in great measure in this fallen world, and so it's absolutely crucial. If you fail to navigate wisely, you won't be saved. Not that navigating wisely earns your salvation. Of course not. That's not what I'm saying. We don't merit our salvation at all. From from start to finish, salvation is all from God. God gives us grace in the person of Christ and we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. But, it would show that the love of Christ has never been shed abroad in your heart. If you continually and persistently failed to navigate wisely. You see, those who embrace wickedness and live for wickedness are in fact those who reject God. And it's an it's with God as the right way to go, and the wrong way to go would be to rebel against God. It's really quite simple. A child can understand that. You go with God or you go against God. And kohelet's aim in our passage is to make us aware of these things, to humble us, to show us the evil and the error of wickedness, because it's so prevalent in this world, and its intent is to trap us that we may escape from it and that we may seek God and be wise. So that we may seek the grace and the mercy that is in Christ in light of living in a fallen world. It's a service to our souls that the Lord has put this text in his word for us. But as we'll see, pursuing wisdom is not an easy task, and like I said earlier, many have taken this text and made it to say something that it's not intending. While it is right that we all must pursue wisdom, that means man and woman, elderly and child, we have to also acknowledge that it is a pursuit that humbles us. And it's intended to. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we read in Proverbs 9. And if your pursuit of wisdom doesn't humble you, if it doesn't bring you low, then I would suggest to you that it's not associated with, with the fear of the Lord, and it's not true wisdom. And I spoke about what the fear of the Lord is back in Ecclesiastes uh, part 18, so I won't go over that again. But we'll, we'll get into this now. So that the first way we consider this is in light of the depth of wisdom. So the first point there on your note sheet, the first heading, is the depth of wisdom. So remember what Kohelet has said here in verse 23. All this I have tested by wisdom. In other words the proverbial things that he said in the beginning of chapter 7, the, the obsession of wisdom and righteousness contrasted to, to folly and wickedness in verse 16 and verse 17, the fallenness of man in verse 20, the, the graciousness we should display to others while considering our own sin, verse 21 and 22, as well as all of the things that he's going to mention post verse 23 up <clears> through chapter 8, verse 17. All of this has been tested by wisdom. He's walking this path for us. It's clear that that is the case from the text even. He's searching it out. He mentions the scheme of things three times in our passage. Eight times he mentions that he's found something or that he's found out that he can't find out something. Eight times he does that. And behind it all is this pursuit of wisdom in which he says, I will be wise, but it was far from me. Now, remember who this is here. This isn't some like knucklehead kid off the streets. This is Solomon. It's King Solomon. It's Kohelet, the sage, the, the preacher, the teacher, the wise one. The man who, when God asked him, and this is recorded in 1 Kings 6, when he was about to receive the office of king, God asked him what it is he wanted, and his reply to the Lord God was to have a discerning mind and an understanding heart. And we read that in asking for this, God was pleased with him. Isn't that what we want, you guys, for God to be pleased with us? So Solomon asked the Lord for something that pleased the Lord. And so Solomon pleases the Lord, and then the Lord, of course, is then pleased to give him what he asked for. And so he gives to him wisdom, we read. And again, remember, this is the same person who who wrote what we call wisdom literature and compiled for us the proverbs, even writing most of the proverbs himself. Proverbs eight eleven, which he wrote, tells us that wisdom is better than jewels; all that you desire cannot compare with with her. That's one of the things he does. Often in Solomon's writings, he compares or he personifies wisdom as a her as a female does the same thing with folly with foolishness as well personifies it as a woman in his writings. so this same man who is wiser than most other men perhaps the second most wise person ever to live only outdone by the lord jesus himself and he is confessing that wisdom was far from him and then he says in verse 24 that which has been so in other words he has some familiarity with wisdom to a degree, is far off. And not only is it far off, but it's deep, very deep, and who can find it? It's kind of like this, I think. You're in a lake, and you can't see the bottom of it, but you think, I want to know how deep this lake is. And so you try to swim down underneath, and you underneath the water, and you go down, and as you go down lower, it gets darker, and it gets colder, and eventually, your ears start to hurt from the pressure, so you can't go down any further, and you have to come back up. It was too deep. You can't reach the bottom. You're in the lake, but you can't find the bottom of the lake. And, and this is the wisdom of God that we're talking about here. So it would be more akin to us trying to dive down and touch there's the sand at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, You know, seven miles deep. It's not going to happen, in other words. That which has been far off, That which has been is far off, and it is deep, very deep, who can find it out? You see, one of the the very first things that the wisdom of God teaches us when we have it is that we are small. How shallow it is we are, and how grand it is that God is, how majestic and great it is that God is, how deep he is. You see, the kind of wisdom that Kohelet is talking about here is not this, Earthly philosophical wisdom that many here on this planet pursue. This is the wisdom of God, Kohelet, who has already submitted to us that he is wise, that he is beyond others, and it is a is a right place to be teaching these things. He's in a right position to be teaching us about wisdom along this track. He's been set apart by God to pursue wisdom even, and then to report back to us about it here in in this book of Ecclesiastes. His conclusion is that he's too small for it. He can't find out its limits. It was far from him. He's expounding in part what we call in theology the creator-creation distinction. We are made in the image of God, and so we bear some of his characteristics, but they're not exactly the same in us as they are in God. There's this distinction between God and God and us, that totally separates us. Herman Bavink puts it like this. He says, there is a God and we are not Him. We are His creatures, created by Him and for Him. We belong to Him and are answerable and accountable to Him. And again, we're just touching the surface of this doctrine. It's profound. But the point is, is we're not God. Nor are we little gods. God is totally other than us. And the reason that we have wisdom is because God is wise. But in comparison to us, the wisdom which God possesses is something far off from us. We can be wise, but we can't know everything that God knows. The hidden things belong to the Lord. Now, this is something that Cola is admitting to having been in the process of testing and searching. It's something that he's found, or in this case, he's not found found it out. But is this just his experience and his opinion that he's, that he's learned while searching out? Or is this the actual revelation of God? Is this the revelation of God in his life, in our lives, and in the lives of all people? And we need to go through a couple of passages that will give us a kind of sense about this, of what Solomon is actually talking about here, when he says that no one can find out the depth of wisdom and its fullness. Man is indeed limited and this is the revelation of God's Word. So turn with me to Job chapter 11. Just a, a few pages before, well, a couple chapters before, it's so right before the collection of the Psalms. Job chapter 11. This is one of Job's advisors speaking here. And so we'll read just a couple of verses. verses this is verse 7 to 9. Job's advisor says to Job, Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven, what can you do? Deeper than Sheol, that's the grave. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Now, this portion of the advisor's advice, he has some sound principles to share. But it's true that at least three of Job's advisors, and this is one of his, his advisors that does bad, three of these advisors end up giving him bad advice, unwise counsel. They say more than they should. But here in this case, and some others as well, I submit to you that he is being thoroughly biblical in his thoughts about God Almighty. Who can know the end of God's limit? It's a, it's a rhetorical question. He's not hoping that Job's going to be like, it's me, I could do it. He's not, he's not asking him that. He's, he's pointing out that we can't fully know the limits of God. No human being can find out the deep things of God, not in life, not in death. It's part of the reason I think the, the glory of eternity with God in heaven is going to be so wonderful. I, it's hard, I can't even fathom, I can't think about what it is to just go on forever. But in that time of forever, we'll never run out of things to learn about God and the depth of His wisdom and His almighty character. He is much greater than us. Or what about Psalm 139? It's a beloved passage for many of us, I'm sure, so just Psalm is the next book. So let's go to Psalm 139, a little bit to your right. And you could follow along there. I'll read verse 1 through 6. There the psalmist says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Behold, O Lord, even before a word is on my tongue, you know it altogether. You have hemmed me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. You know, the, the knowledge that God has of all of our lives is beyond what we can understand. And it's, it's not just the psalmist that is able to say this. This is true about all of God's creation. God has this sort of knowledge, this sort of wisdom about all of His creation, The wisdom of God, it knows the word on our tongues before it even comes out of our mouth. The psalmist is right. Such knowledge is too wonderful for us. It is high. We cannot attain it. It puts us on our knees and it causes us to worship God. We are His little creatures. He is God. Do you see how it humbles us? That God is this way, that He has put in this divine limitation on us. Or in Isaiah chapter 55, when God confesses that His ways are not our ways and that His thoughts are not our thoughts. There is this infinite gap between us and our thinking and our thoughts and God and His thinking and His wisdom and His thoughts and His ways. The gap is deep, very deep. As the preacher says in Ecclesiastes 7, we can't find it out it's mysterious to us these words deep very deep they could be translated as well as mysterious exceedingly mysterious and so there there is this god-given limitation that exists which prevents us from knowing the ends of wisdom We, as the creation of God, find ourselves to be in this predicament. He created us this way, limited, not able to know everything, and He is the only creator. His ways are going to be mysterious to us in some regard. That is okay. We don't need to beat ourselves up about this fact. It's not a depressing truth. This is the way it is because it humbles us. And it drives us to worship our great God. He's so other than us. That's what the Apostle Paul did with this information, of course. It's In the book of Romans, you could turn there. It's in the New Testament, right after the book of Acts. Romans chapter 11. In this letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul writes about the, the full plan of salvation. He explains the ramifications of sin and the sovereignty of God and salvation. That salvation only comes... Through faith in Christ to those elect that were atoned for, and at the end of Romans 11, he offers this doxology that is equally beautiful and profound. Okay, at the end of Romans chapter 11, verse 33, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways!" For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given to Him a gift that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. You see, it's about worship. This God-given limit in creation compels us to worship. Oh, the depths of wisdom, the Apostle Paul writes how unsearchable it is as it's displayed in judgments and ways. And listen, you know, it, it pertains to salvation. It involves, in Romans 11, salvation. So Solomon had in some form here, in some way, a, a knowledge that he was small and that God and God's wisdom was vast and deep. And that ultimately, wisdom ultimately even escapes the wise. Wisdom escapes the wise. That's the point. That's part of this divine plan. This is the way that God has established his world. It's God who makes things far off and exceedingly mysterious. And when men try to be as wise as God, they get themselves in trouble. Think of the Tower of Babel. They want to make a tower so they can be as God, to know as God knows. And we know what happened. No matter how much it is that you devote your heart to wisdom and friends, devote your heart to wisdom. Solomon's not saying don't do that. But just know that if you devote when you devote your heart to wisdom, God has divinely established a limit on it. But it's not just that. There's a second category, and this is my second point, and also I won't spend a lot of time here because we've been dealing with this in previous verses through Ecclesiastes chapter seven. It's the morality of wisdom there on your note sheet. That's this next category. Notice what he says here in verse 25. So we're back in Ecclesiastes now, chapter 7. I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. This tells us something about wisdom, church. It has to involve morality, righteousness and wickedness. Wisdom discerns righteousness and wickedness. If you grow in wisdom, you will grow in your discernment of what is right and what is wrong and what is to be avoided, what is sinful. You understand that reality and then you apply that truth to yourself and you walk the path of righteousness when you are pursuing wisdom, when you are growing in wisdom. But the world, the flesh, and the devil are working actively to blur those lines. What exactly is righteousness? There is this push in our culture now, that is meant to secularize wisdom and call what is evil, good. And that has always existed, of course, in some sense or another. But whereas only a few years ago, I remember people saying things, it was very common for people to say things, something like this, like, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. Or, or they would say something like, you know, you can live the way you want, Christian, but just don't impose your morality upon me. Whereas that used to be the world's wisdom, it's rapidly becoming different now. Things have intensified. I don't know if you've paid attention to that. No longer is the world satisfied with everyone having their own truths. Now, the wisdom of the world is saying, you Christians need to get into line and to conform with our will and our agenda. And really, it is, it is chaos, it is wickedness that is being advocated for. The things being said now... The laws which are being passed and are, are being tried to pass now concerning things like like gender and sexuality, for example, they are being forced upon us. We're being told to comply and to stand down or to suffer the consequences. And in these things, the world is attempting to be wise. They are they're wanting to be. They they, they feel like they're being loving, but in reality, it's showing the world's foolishness. It seems wise to some, it seems loving to some, but in fact it is wickedness. So the wisdom that comes from God requires a discernment of righteousness and wickedness because there is a wisdom of the world that claims to be righteous, but it is in fact wickedness. And if you're going to walk in wisdom and navigate this world wisely, you need to be able to tell the difference. So he applied himself to know this. He sought it out he turned his mind to know the wickedness and folly and even the foolishness of madness. He set his mind on wicked things and foolish things and discerned them for what they are. And remember what he's already told us numerous times in this book already? There's no true happiness in wickedness and folly. It may start out sweet, but it's end every time. And it might come fast for some, and it might come later for some, and it might not come to the very end of someone's life for others. But even if it starts sweet... If you pursue wickedness and foolishness, the end is always going to be bitterness. There is no happiness apart from God. You can chase that wickedness and, and that folly, but its end is madness. Everything is vanity apart from the Lord. So ultimately, wisdom is far from us. But we're given enough of a measure of it, praise the Lord, to know righteousness and wickedness. We, can, we cannot know the secret counsel of the Lord, but we can turn our heart to know and to search out wisdom and the wickedness of folly. And now Kohelet turns to an application of wisdom. He speaks of something he's found in his searching out these deep questions of life. It would seem here that there's personal experience that is behind these next statements that are coming up. He's found something we read in verse 26. It's his experience. And it's written from the perspective of a man. So hopefully the subheading that I've entitled here on your note sheet is understandable then. It's we're calling this section the example of the wicked woman. And again, here's what I was talking about a little bit earlier too, that men under false pretense have taken this to make it say something that it's not, and we'll, I'll get more into that. So, whereas verse 23 and 25 were somewhat familiar with us because of previous lessons Colette has taught us, in verse 26 we have something new in his discovery, or at least unmentioned up until now. In verse 26, we read that Solomon, in his search, has found something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. Fetters are those chains, those shackles that you probably would see on a a picture of a prisoner, not the ones that go on your wrists, but on your ankles. So those ones that would, you know, they, they make it so that a person is trapped and contained. And then he says, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. And we have to understand that, that this is a severe bitterness that the preacher has judged. Look at what he says. This is more bitter than death. You understand what that, that means, right? That's saying he would rather have death than to be trapped by a, a wicked woman. Death is one thing. It's evil. It has a sting. But he says he'd rather die than be a, a prisoner of the wicked woman. You know, you've, you've got two doors before you. You open one. It leads to death. You open the other. It leads to a wicked woman. Coelet chooses the door to death. So this is a serious passage. And there are two questions that come to us in this verse. The first has to do with the relation of this verse within its context. And the second has to do with the meaning of the passage itself. Now, Kohelet, of course, has been seeking wisdom, as he said in verse 25. He's thinking and searching and he's sought out to know the wickedness of folly that ends in madness. And we know because of his previous commentary on his life back in chapter 2, verse 8, Part of this journey that he is going on to give us these understandings of wisdom, back there in chapter 2, verses 8, he said that he delves into sensual relationships with women. It could very well be that in the midst of that pursuit, he discovered what he reveals to here in verse 26, but what is it that he is actually teaching us? Now we need to realize, of course, that male and female relationships have been strained since the fall since that first sin in the Garden of Eden. Our world, specifically the Western world, is in a state of utter confusion right now concerning male and female relationships. Many of us don't even understand what a male and a female is anymore. But this didn't begin with fourth wave feminism in the the early 2010s. It actually began a long, long time ago in a garden. There has always been this inherent conflict between the man and the woman, because of the curse that came with disobeying God in the Garden Temple. But it's not like Solomon is some woman hater, or that he's down on marriage, or anything like that. And In fact, there's a specific kind of woman that he has in view here. It's not every woman that he's speaking about. We might call her a hunter. Notice what her heart is. Her heart are traps. That's not accidental. She's, she's forceful. Notice what her hands are. Her hands are chains. The things that are in her heart and her hands are all poisonous and calculated to trap and to harm you. The picture here is not the male and female relationship that Kohelet will talk about in and he'll extol even in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 9, because there he talks about you enjoying the wife that you love. And it's certainly not the woman who a whole book is based upon in the Song of Solomon, this woman that he's a, that is adored and loved and respected, and which Solomon wrote, of course. So he's not down on women. He's not hating on marriage at all. This is the kind of woman that he's, that he's speaking about as the one warned of in Proverbs 6:24 through 36, and Proverbs 7, 5 through 27. Let me read a portion from Proverbs 7. I, I think you'll see the similarities there. To look back to Proverbs as well. It's just the book right before Ecclesiastes, so it should be very easy to find. So I'll, I'll, it's really, like I said, beginning at verse 5, excuse me, but I'll just read from 21. It says, With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast. An arrow pieces its, pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O oh sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. You see, it is this kind of a woman that he's talking about here. It's the kind of woman who is trying to ensnare and entrap somebody. Remember what Jesus said, that the mouth speaks what is in the heart. And so if you have to watch her heart because there's a trap there, it's going to come out by the way of her lips, you know, the things she does, her hands and her feet. All of her communication is for the end of, of a man pursuing righteousness. It's going to be harm for harm and for trapping and for making someone a prisoner. And Solomon says that he'd avoid this as fiercely as anything else he'd us to do the same thing as well there's nothing healthy here nothing good for us here nothing that will bring our soul gladness in that kind of a trapped state being ensnared by a woman who's being who's bent on being wicked you see because a woman who is bent on being wicked is in fact living contrary to the nature god created her to have a woman is to glorify the lord god and to be a helpmate to man not one who traps him and turns him from the Lord. And of course, sin is to blame for this. Every person, a man and a woman alike, our nature is fallen because of Adam's transgression in the Garden of Eden. But this isn't what woman was intended to be, or man for that matter either. Nor is it what a Christian woman is. As an aside here, I wanted to, for a moment, just sing the praise of the the godly Christian women that are here at First Family Church. When I think of the women that God has brought to FFC, single, married, whatever it is, these godly women, I am grateful to the Lord for His mercy in that. There are some godly sisters here at First Family Church, women who care about doctrine and theology, women who want to pursue holiness, women who care about good works and they abound in them, women who are devoted to prayer, women who are interested in the deep things of God, women who desire to keep the gospel the main thing. There are women who have glorified the Lord is standing by their husband through a difficult trial, even through difficult sin. There are are women who use their gifts to bless others here at First Family Church, and, and we are blessed because of you godly women. The joy that we have as a congregation is by and large due to the godly women that are here at First Family Church. And so we're grateful to the Lord for that. And I also want to say that you younger ladies whether you're just young in age or young in the faith, that are here this morning, I would urge you to get to know some of these women who are older, not necessarily age-wise, but just older in the faith. And, and let them disciple you. Ask for it. Approach it, other women for it. Let older women teach the younger women. That is what the Scripture says. That's the instruction of Scripture. Because listen, young ladies, and I guess you know even to the older ladies as well too, the wicked woman that Kohelet has been warning of, you need to be warned about her as well. She's coming for you also. I don't simply mean in the sense of a homosexual relationship, although you've got to be aware of that, 2019. But this world wisdom, and you know, we know this world wisdom is calling what is evil good, but what I mainly mean is that she wants you to be her disciple. She wants you to be wicked as well. Her intent is to trap you also. So, so by the grace of God, please God by grace and the mercy of God and, and escape her. So if, if a man is to not be entrapped and ensnared by a wicked woman, what is it that he should be? If a man can escape her by pleasing God, how is it that he can please God? How is it that he should relate to a woman? Well, if we think of the nature of a woman. We know that she is made in the image of God, and that when it comes to her relationship with a man, she ultimately needs to be protected. Now, so I'm speaking of headship here, okay? Spiritually, physically, emotionally, all of it. A woman should be protected by a man as as she seeks to be his helpmate. Now, I know it's 2019. If I said that in the wrong context, surely some women would be thinking like. I don't need no man to protect me. I could, I could hear it in my head. I could see it even. I know that happens. I'm not trying to offend any women, and hopefully, we all know that the scriptures testify at great length to the great deeds of women throughout, and even through church history. Some of the missionaries, just the things that women have done, it through the grace of God have been amazing. So we're not saying like that. But I think it might be easiest to make my point through an illustration about a man's duty to protect the physical physical side of things. If there is a man and a woman together, and some guy is acting crazy, who should the responsibility fall on for defending the other person? The man, hands down, right? That's not even a question. Or married friends. If the wife hears something outside at 2 a.m., in the morning and for sure she heard it because you're probably fast asleep. You probably wouldn't wake up if it was the second coming. I don't what I should should she go outside at that point and see what, what the mess is? No. Not at all, right? You get up, you grab that Louisville slugger from under the bed and then you go outside to see what the deal is. This is just how it is in creation, friends. This is this is the roles that God has given to us. We're thinking of a woman's intended nature here and how a man should engage her, contrasted to that of this wicked woman who traps a man and turns his heart. Because when a woman lives according to God's original design by the grace of God, then the man that she is relating to may, by the grace of God, be not hindered. And because of a woman's nature, she should be respected, she should be cherished, she should be loved, she should be protected. You know, God has made woman this way. Not that a woman can never protect herself by any means. I'm not saying that. I have two little daughters so far and I want them to be able to protect themselves because of some of these wicked men that are out here in this world. But it's a general principle is what I'm thinking here. You know, I'm not always going to be there to protect my daughters. Her brothers won't be there. Her future husbands won't be there. So so women, you have to protect yourselves too. So I'm, I'm just speaking of a general principle in this regard. But it's also, theologically speaking, and biblically speaking, is true as well, that women need to be protected. And caught up in protection is is love and respect and tender care. The general way about this is that a dad has the responsibility to do so. The patriarch has it until the woman is married, and then the husband is charged with this. Men aren't to be trapped by women. They are to protect them. Granted, not everyone gets married. I know that. There's a gift of singleness. But even in the case of a woman who is single, she's not to be acting like the wicked woman of Ecclesiastes 7. That's still contrary to her nature, her intended nature. That's not how she is supposed to live, and living in such a way doesn't glorify God. Now, we know that this is Solomon speaking here of his own experience. He's speaking of something that he's found. And we all know that he was, of course, a man, and who, despite the wisdom he had, he made unwise decisions when it came to women. Uh, The word of God in 1 Kings 11 reveals that Solomon himself had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and that they turned away his heart. And it's interesting then, isn't it, it, that his heart was turned away by the foolish decisions he made. I'm sure they were political decisions in some part, but that's besides the point. It's not licensed to do what he did. But now in his experience, he's writing and warning about women whose heart is snares and nets, the kind of woman that would turn a man's heart from the Lord. which is exactly what happened to him. So regardless of the marital status of a woman, we need to be thinking of how this woman is acting in the context of a male-female relationship since that is how he's giving it to us. And listen, again, you know, he's not talking about all women. I'm not speaking about all women. He's speaking of the wicked woman. It's specific. This isn't some misogynistic rant. he's going on here this is the mercy of the lord to warn us men and women alike about wicked women men should seek to avoid being trapped by her women should seek to avoid becoming her and i mentioned earlier that this of course is written from solomon's perspective and so the wisdom is offered to us from the point of the man but it's within the biblical revelation to also point out that women you also need to be aware of the wicked man all of the things that I said about the wicked woman that Solomon was extolling here, they could be said about a wicked man as well too. And so women, you need to be aware that there are wicked men out there who will turn your heart away from the Lord. Men who are hunters. Men whose heart is a snare, whose hands are a trap, whose hands are chains, Men who don't live according to the way that God designed them to live with women. And it would be worse for you, woman, to choose a man like that than it would be to choose death. It's more bitter to be trapped by a wicked man than it is to be trapped by death or to be to die. So a man can lead you away from the Lord. It goes both ways. But the bottom line is that the end result is a bitterness that's worse, worse than death. It's pretty surprising here that Kohelet says that he's investigated, he's searched for wisdom, and then he comes up for air and he says, there's a bitterness that's worse than death to be in a relationship with a woman whose heart is snares and nets. Now tell me, is it true or have you found it to be true in part or maybe totally? Is it true that a, a bad relationship has the ability to sour someone? Have you noticed that? Have you have you experienced that maybe? You know, there there are people who endure all kinds of hardships. I'm talking about the death of a baby, the death of a family member, the loss of a job, the loss of your livelihood, your house burns down. But there is something about a bad relationship that has the power to break someone and give them an unbiblical view and perspective of life. Now, Solomon tells us that the one who pleases God escapes her or his entrapments. The one who is pleasing to God escapes such entrapments. However, the sinner, and when he says the sinner here, he's not talking about this universal indictment of sin, how everyone is a sinner. He's speaking about the fool, the fool who, who gets trapped. He says it's the sinner who is captured by such a person. In other words, God gives a special grace to those who are walking in his ways so that they escape such a woman or such a relationship. But to those who are not, he allows them to be ensnared by such hearts and minds and hands. Dr. George Scipioni, a professor of pastoral counseling at Greensville Presbyterian Seminary, he says, oftentimes... Adultery is nothing less than the judgment of God on a sensual heart. He's right, I think. The expression, this statement here at the end of verse 26 reveals something about the motives of the one who has been so-called burned from a bad relationship. You see, for those who are looking for love in all the wrong places, God has a special surprise for you. He may let you have it, Douglas Wilson, in his commentary, says that foolish men believe they have found sexual liberty just at the moment when God has seized them by their yearning little idol in order to dash them against the rocks. Their exhilarating sensation of liberty is only temporary, a free fall, with death is at the end of it. That's sobering, isn't it? Now, in Kovalet's entire search for wisdom, he may have come came up empty-handed more often than not. We've been seeing this. But there are some lessons he learned with force, and this was one of them. There is only folly in allowing oneself to be captured by an evil hearted woman or man. So don't look for love or satisfaction in a woman or man whose hands are fetters, whose heart is like traps. Kohelet is essentially saying that it might be fun to be prey, but prey eventually gets caught and eaten. Have a heart for God for obedient and you'll be spared such pain. Have a heart for sensuality and he'll let you fall into the trap. Now, we turn our attention to verses 27 and 29, a passage that I'm sure Pastor Nick didn't purposely plan to be away in Las Vegas for <laughs> not like <laughs> not like verse 27 and 28 can be difficult at all, right? Or <laughs> like 26 was easy. So let's, let's read it once more. It says, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. While adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found, one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, and they have sought out many schemes. Maybe maybe we just pray and close right now. <laughs> 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 Uh, we'll persist, we'll persist on. So, so Solomon here, he says, Colette here, you know, he says that his-, his searches, up until this point at least, have been thorough. He's walked this path, he's-, he's found this out, he's done this, he's done that, he's figured out these things. But here at this section, he, he admits that he's still calculating. He's still adding up the numbers as it were, adding one thing to another we, we read. He's trying to find the scheme of things. In other words, the, the, verdict is, the verdict is still out on this. You know, maybe if he sampled another thousand people, maybe he'd find different results. And the point of what he's saying is that something is very rare. Something is not found easily. Now you may have noticed the text doesn't specifically say what it is that he's looking for. Uh, and building off verse 26 isn't all that helpful for the context, I think. Some, some commentators Note that, the, that he's speaking here of the rarity of a true f- friend. Who has found a, a true friend? A man, one man has found it, a woman hasn't found it. That's what some commentators think. I, I, That's not very appealing to me. Other commentators, like Roland Murphy, note that this passage is pointing forward and backward, and if that's the case, then it would be true wisdom that Koholet is searching for in a man and a woman here. I think that makes more sense in the broader context. Remember, we're put, we push back into the comment that Colet made in verse 23, he's searching for true wisdom, but it's far from him. It was elusive. He looked for it, but he couldn't find it. So he's looking for wisdom, and it's rare, which, by the way, is one of the reasons why we shouldn't strive to be overly wise. Remember Solomon told us that in Ecclesiastes 7.16? It's a rare commodity in the first place. But Kohelet's statistics here have been troubling to some. Some people, under false pretense, have used this text to teach that the Bible is anti-woman. And some men have used this text to be anti-woman. And both of those positions are seriously wrong. Both of those positions are outside of the context of what the Scripture is saying here. Colette says that he's been able to find one man that is wise, but not one woman. So before we're quick to join any of those two erroneous positions, we need to observe something. Colette doesn't have too high a regard for men either. Not in this text, at least, does he? He finds only one-tenth of one percent better than women. That's an incredibly small number, friends. And really, it's hard to say with any sort of certainty that he's paying homage to man over woman at all. I think we read that into the text, but that's, I don't think that's actually there. Joel Bekey, in his study Bible, points out what I think might be kind of obvious, that this one man has, who has true wisdom is none other than Solomon's savior. It's Jesus Christ, the Lord, the God-man, and he's pointing forward to him. And we should also remember that Kohelet often personifies wisdom as a female in Proverbs. Proverbs 1, Proverbs 3, Proverbs 4, Proverbs 8, Proverbs 9, all of those chapters of Proverbs speak of wisdom as a woman, as a she and as a her. Now, out of fairness to Kohelet, he's still searching the matter out. Again, he's only, he's only sampled a group of 1,000. Maybe if he looked into more, maybe he'd have different results if he looked to a larger group. Unless, of course, he's truly intending to highlight Jesus Christ as the one man with true wisdom. But this is in no way saying that a man can be wise and that a woman can't be wise. That's not what this means at all. In fact, you know, in Proverbs 1, he instructs his son to listen to his mother's wisdom. Women can have wisdom. He's no misogynist, and neither should any Christian man be. What he is saying is that the whole human race is greatly lacking when it comes to wisdom. He's still making calculations, but at this point, he wants to tell us that the whole of humanity leaves something to be desired. There's not much wisdom out there, but there is something he's firm on, something that he is sure on. It's Verse 29 says, See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. The biggest limitation that he sees in this pursuit of wisdom, as he concludes, is our own depravity, our sinfulness. This is the problem as to why wisdom is not abounding. God is indeed sovereign over all. Remember chapter 3 and the other chapters as well. But that makes it clear that God is not the responsible party in this reality. We're not speaking of God's eternal decrees here. We're speaking of what happened in time. And he says that God made man upright. In the original creation there in the garden, Adam and Eve were made upright in right, true righteousness and in holiness. They have the ability to not sin and the ability to sin. And of course, we know what happened. There was no sin in the garden until that devil crept in and Adam didn't remove him. There was no curse of sin until Adam ate after Eve ate. Man was made upright. He's sure of that. He's found that. It's been revealed to him by the Lord. And at this point, if you look around and you see a lot of pervasiveness and and not a lot of wisdom in the world, realize it was not God who, in a sense, put man on that path. He created man upright. He's not touching on the matter of God decreeing the fall or not, which we would affirm, what he's saying is that the crookedness that we see is not a part of the original design he first made, man and woman. It came after Adam plunged all of his posterity into sin and death. And since that time, we, mankind, men and women both alike, have sought out many schemes. We do that in our will, we bear the responsibility. But to God be praised. Because at this point, we must also acknowledge that God didn't simply withdraw from his creation because of these things. In fact, he does the exact opposite. He enters into his creation. He tabernacles with us and he takes on a body of flesh so that wicked men and that wicked women can be reconciled. He, Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, he lived under the law, obedient to every letter of the law, never once sinning. And then he goes to the cross according to the decree of God to be crucified by the hands of wicked men, so that he could be our substitute there, taking the wrath that all who believe in him deserve. He's the wisdom of God, a stumbling block to those who are perishing, and he raises himself up for our justification, and he's seen by the disciples after his resurrection, and they are looking upon at him while a cloud descends and then carries him up out of their sight to where he ascends, to the the right hand of the Father, to the throne of grace, where he lives, to make intercession for us. That's not a scheme, brothers and sisters. That's the hope of glory for us in Christ Jesus. Look to Him. It's in Him that that your true wisdom will be found and that will humble you and will bring you to worship. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so holy and we are grateful to you For the way in which you made us, Lord, you made us upright. And we know that it is our own sin that has separated mankind from you. But we are grateful that in your wisdom, you have made a way for us to be right with you. And we pray that you would work salvation in our lives and all of the elect all across the world, Lord. We pray that you would help us to be wise about this world we live in. Give us wisdom that we may... Be able to discern wickedness and foolishness that we may know what is true righteousness, but let us not give ourselves over to excessively pursuing wisdom, Lord, for we know that we are not as wise as you, nor will we ever be, but we are glad that you are wise as you are because we trust you and we love you. You have shown yourself to us and we need you. Lord, we pray these things all in Christ's name. Amen.